ultimately, we know there's a problem. That doesn't mean that the industry can't be part of the solution. Well, there's actually no question. If you ask any farmer out there, they will tell you the one without the other is not possible. Because if you were a vegan, and if you were to say, what I like to eat is mainly organic crops, then I would tell you that's an oxymoron. It's not possible. And you would say, well, why is that not possible? That is not possible because if you buy organic crops, then by law, they cannot be fertilized with synthetic fertilizers. They must be fertilized with organic fertilizers. And guess where organic fertilizers come from? Without exception, they come out of some animal's butt. Hey, y'all, you're listening to Risky Behavior, where no subject is off limits. Kick back, tune in, and enjoy a beverage with us as we explore controversial topics and answer scientific questions. Ranging from health and nutrition to behavioral risks and climate change. I'm Dr. Taylor Wallace. And I'm Dr. Shatha Chakraborty. Together, we'll loosen lips and spill tea with special guests you will not want to miss. Today we have on our podcast, Dr. Frank Mitloner, director of the CLEAR Center at the Department of Animal Science at UC Davis, where he is also a professor and air quality specialist in cooperative extension. Frank's extensive research includes understanding and mitigating air emissions from livestock operations, as well as studying their health implications. At CLEAR, he oversees the intersection of animal agriculture and the environment, helping stakeholders make better decisions about food choices while reducing environmental impacts. We're thrilled. There couldn't be a better person to help us understand the livestock industry's role in climate change. Let's welcome Frank to the podcast. Dr. Mitloner, welcome. Well, hi there. So I guess to kick off the conversation, you know, we've had several discussions um, on the show this season about the environmental impact of livestock. And we know that cows um, produce mainly methane gas. Um, We've all heard the story of cow farts or what's really cow burps (laughs) and the methane gas they produce uh, that contributes to global warming. Uh, We also know that methane gas is a more potent greenhouse gas uh, compared to CO2. Uh, So the natural conclusion is that this would be a big problem uh, for the whole climate change crisis. But um, from what I'm reading, it's it's not that simple, right? Yeah, you're right. There's a lot of nuance to it and it gets complicated quickly. But if you want to, um, I'm happy to break it down. Please do. Yeah. So what you oftentimes hear is global numbers. OK, so when you read uh, social social media um, pieces, for example, they say that livestock globally produces over 14 percent. That's one four of all greenhouse gases. And, and that number is true, actually. Globally, that number is true. But what's really important to note is that you cannot use that number and apply it to, let's say, the United States or Canada or European countries. It's a global average. Why does that matter? It matters because in a country like the United States, there are many developing countries where that number would be 50 or 90%. Why? Because other sectors in their societies are less developed. 
less vehicles, less power plants, and so on. And as a result, livestock in many developing countries plays a big role, okay, amounting to a large percentage of greenhouse gases. In developed countries like the United States, livestock is dwarfed by vehicles, by power plants, by cement industry, and so on. And that, um, <clears throat> and that leads us to a situation where our livestock emissions are actually a, a rather small part of the total. That's, that's part of it. Okay? So first of all, in the United States, let's say, uh, livestock contributes to 4% of greenhouse gases, and that's all livestock combined. But what's also really important is that the most important greenhouse gas that we're concerned about is methane, as, as Tyler just mentioned. And um, it's true that methane is a very potent greenhouse gas. Okay, so that's the one side of the story, the one that everybody listens to all the time. But there's another aspect to, life, uh, to livestock methane, and that is the fact that um, while methane is very potent, it has a very short lifespan. So, for example, CO2 has a lifespan of a thousand years, meaning when you guys drive your cars, that every time you do so, you put new CO2 into the atmosphere. The CO2 you drove, you put out yesterday, by driving your car is still in the atmosphere today. The CO2 you put out last year is still in the air. The CO2 you put out 10 years ago is still in the air. The CO2 your parents or grandparents put into the air, all of that is still there because CO2 is a stock gas, it accumulates in the atmosphere, and it has a lifespan of 1,000 years. Every time we burn oil, coal, and gas, the resulting CO2 goes into the atmosphere and stays there for a thousand years. When a cow belches and that methane escapes her mouth and that methane goes into the air, that methane has a lifespan of 10 years. What's really important for this nuanced discussion here is the fact that all the other greenhouse gases are just produced and once they are produced, they stay in the air for a long time. It's different with methane. Methane is produced and destroyed at equal rates. There's a process in the atmosphere that destroys methane, leading to its short lifespan of 10 years. And that process is called oxidation. So the entire uh, portion of the discussion around the destruction of methane is always missing. It only lives for 10 years and then it's gone. If you keep livestock at stable amounts, at stable herd sizes, then the amount of methane produced and the amount of methane destroyed are in balance. If you have stable livestock herds, you're not adding additional new methane to the atmosphere, and hence you're not adding additional new warming to the atmosphere. However, if we increase livestock herds, like we do in many developing countries, that's happening today, then we're increasing total amounts of methane, and that's something we must not do because methane is the potent greenhouse gas. If you manage to decrease methane, then you are pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. A decrease of methane, for example, through using feed additives or manure uh, management that reduces methane, if we manage to decrease methane, we pull carbon out of the air, which has an effect on what's called negative warming. And that's the same as cooling. And the best analogy for CO2 I can give you is, the planting of trees. If you plant trees, what do the trees do? They suck carbon out of the atmosphere during photosynthesis. They take on CO2 
and hence they reduce global warming by doing so. The same happens when we reduce methane from livestock. So what I'm telling you is livestock is not just a much lesser amount of a concern on, on the climate side, but it's even a potential for providing a solution by pulling methane out of the atmosphere, contributing to short-term cooling. Okay, so let's say we take methane out of the equation and we're just talking about carbon emissions. Let's say the United States is 4%, like you said, um, and globally it's 14% or something, some range, right? That's still a significant impact for a sector to play on, and especially as demand is increasing. And then the U.S. diet is, what, three times more consumption of meat than the rest of the world's average. So put, putting that together, how do we make sense of the overall impact and how do we address that given the trajectory we're on to this warming planet? Yeah, so uh, every sector in society has, has an impact on warming, okay? No matter what we do, whether we drive, whether we heat our homes or whether we eat, it all has an impact on, on warming. And I think what we have to think about here is how can we limit that impact to the largest extent possible? So the total impact of our food system of all agriculture in the United States today is approximately 10%. Livestock is 4%, the rest is uh, soils and plants and so on. So a total food-related um, carbon footprint in the United States is around 10%. So can we further reduce that? Absolutely we can. For example, if we reduce methane, then that reduction of methane has a direct, a positive impact on the warming scenario by providing cooling counteracting some of the other greenhouse gas impacts. We do definitely have to help many of the developing countries to becoming more efficient in how to produce livestock because people there have more disposable income by being lifted out of poverty. And the first thing they do when they have more money is to provide their families with more nutrient-dense food. And that's generally eggs and milk and meat and so on. We have to help them to become more efficient in producing livestock. And we also have to further reduce our own livestock-related impacts on the environment. In fact, we have done so. I'll give you two examples. Um, on the dairy side, for example, we used to have 25 million dairy cows. 25. And that was back in 1950. 25 million. Today, we have 9 million dairy cows, so much fewer. But with the much smaller dairy herd today, we are producing 60% more milk. That means the carbon footprint of a glass of milk 70 years ago versus today has shrunk by two thirds. On the beef side, we used to have 140 million beef cattle. Today we have 90 million beef cattle, so much fewer beef cattle, but we are producing the same amount of beef. Today we are producing 18% of the global beef with 6% of the global beef herd, which is the herd that we have in the United States. So that has a direct impact on minimize the effects of uh, the food that we produce on carbon emissions. But if the if the population was stable, that would that would be consistent then over time. But because the demand is increasing, isn't that what worries you in terms of how do we actually address? And then in that case, I'm not saying the answer is go vegan. And Tiller and I talk about this quite a bit, and we talk to our guests about this quite a bit. But like if people reduce their meat consumption um, and actually did go vegan, wouldn't it solve some of this impact problem? So uh, there, are, there are several nuances to this discussion. First, uh, am I concerned about the increasing 
uh, demand of animal source foods. Well, I just turned 50. When I was a little boy, there were 3 billion people in the world. Today, it's 7.8 billion people. And by the time I'm an old man, there will be 9.5 billion people. In other words, human population on our planet will have tripled throughout our lifetime. Okay, so does that concern me? Of course it does. So the question then is, how do we satisfy the nutritional need of a growing global population without depleting all natural resources? That's it. And to me, the answer is drastically improving the way that we produce food. But ultimately, we know there's a problem, and there, but there, that doesn't mean that the industry, animal agriculture, can't be part of the solution. So that's what we need to get out there. Well, there's actually no question. If you ask any farmer out there, they will tell you the one without the other is not possible. Because if you were a vegan, and if you were to say what I like to eat is mainly organic crops, then I would tell you that's an oxymoron. It's not possible. Right. And you would say, well, why is that not possible? That is not possible because if you buy organic crops, then by law, they cannot be fertilized with synthetic fertilizers. They must be fertilized with organic fertilizers. And guess where organic fertilizers come from? Without exception, they come out of some animal's butt. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many of these. And There's yeah. so many of these. Since 1950, we have tripled the amount of products produced per unit of land in this country. We know how to improve efficiencies. Now, the, the question is, and I hear that a lot, shall we change our diet? Shall we all become vegans, vegetarians? Well, here's the latest statistics on that. A group of scientists has looked into what would the extreme do? A U.S. turning vegan, what would that do to the carbon footprint? What would it do to nutrient security of this country? What they found was that, and I already told you, livestock uh, amounts to 4% of total emissions. So if we all were to turn vegan, they said, that we would reduce the carbon footprint of this country by 2.6%. If we were to go meatless Monday as a country, an entire country, no meat one day a week, we would, re we would reduce the carbon footprint by 0.3%. An interesting uh, number is that if you were an omnivore today and you were to decide going vegan for one year, then that would reduce your carbon footprint by 0.8 tons of greenhouse gases. Contrast that to one single flight from the United States to Europe, one passenger, which amounts to 1.6 tons. So going vegan for one year, 0.8 tons, one flight, 1.6 tons, meaning going vegan for one year would have half the impact of one, per, one passenger flight to Europe. So you can decide for yourself whether that's a profound impact. Uh, it is an impact, but the impact is, is relatively minor. The biggest by far impact that human activity has on climate is the amount of fossil fuel that we burn which is oil, coal, and gas carbon that was stored in the ground for hundreds of millions of years. And over the last 70 years, we've extracted half of that carbon. We have burned it, now cars, trucks, trains, planes, ships, and so on. And now that carbon is in the atmosphere. That by far is the number one. Our food system has an impact, but the, this impact is dwarfed by the impact of fossil fuel uh, related activities.
sorry for all these long answers, but you're asking me loaded questions. So <laughs> no, this <laughs> they, is uh, great. Thank you. Good, good, good. So, and you know what? What I also find very interesting. Maybe I, I say that as a last uh, on on this question of veganism. I have talked to some uh, representatives of the Vegan Society of the United States, and and they tell me that they are quite concerned about what they call retention rate. And I asked them, what is the retention rate? And they said, this is the rate of people who stick with veganism, okay? They start being a vegan, and uh, and so here were these leaders telling me they were concerned about it. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? And they said, 84%, 84% of all vegans stay vegan for only one year. So it's only 16% that stick with it for longer than one year. So that is why I tell you, in my opinion, a move to veganism would only be moving the needle in a certain way, in a minor way, if that move were more sustainable with respect to being more attractive to people to stick with it. If they don't stick with it, then it's not doing anything. Let me ask, you know, this is a little bit of a controversial question, and maybe this is me being a little green to this area, no pun intended. If it, it seems like the issue you know, obviously, you know, you inhale oxygen and you breathe out carbon dioxide. So if there's more of us breathing, then you're putting more carbon dioxide into the air. I mean, is the major problem here just the exponential population growth we've seen? It just seems like the kind of the underlying thing nobody wants to talk about in climate change is there's just too many of us on the earth. And I don't know what the answer to that is, but what's your take on that when it comes? Because it seems like if you're saying CO2 has a, a thousand years can live in the atmosphere, we're all breathing out CO2. I mean, the more of us that breathe, the more CO2 that we, you know, put into the atmosphere. It's an interesting question. It's an interesting question. And so um, the CO2 that we exhale is not considered a greenhouse gas leading to global warming. How can that be? Well, the answer is that carbon that we are exhaling originated in plants because plants had assimilated CO2 during photosynthesis. Then we ate the plants and we metabolized the carbohydrates contained in the plants. And what we're exhaling is the carbon that was previously assimilated by plants. So the plants had taken that carbon out of the air. We are eating the plants and putting it back into the air. That's why it's a wash. That's why CO2 respired or respired CO2 is not considered a contribution to greenhouse gases. But here is the deal. Where does the carbon come from that a cow belches out in the form of methane? That carbon also came from the atmosphere as CO2 because it was the plants that took on that CO2 carbon during photosynthesis. The cow then went to eat the plant then some of that carbohydrate in the plant was converted into methane. And that methane, after 10 years, is converted back when it's destroyed, back into CO2. That's as much a wash as what you and I are exhaling right now. It's just going through one additional step, which is methane. So while we're talking about consumption, what livestock is consuming, animal feed is quite a controversial topic as well that's come up many times on our shows. Mm -hmm. and. Is it true then that the majority of land is actually used for animal feed? Not the majority, but like some some pretty significant number. And in which case, could we could that have been reutilized for human consumption as opposed to animal feed? 
What do we say to people who bring this up? So um, this is one of the most misleading assertions out there. Well, first of all, if you look uh, to the world's authority in food and agriculture, it's the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations in Rome, and you go to one of their publications called Tackling Climate Change Through Livestock. Sure. Tackling Climate Change Through Livestock. You'll find that globally, 85% of all feed fed to livestock is non-human edible meaning the vast majority of the feed fed to livestock globally, and also here in the United States, is non-human edible, either co-product or byproduct of plant production, cotton seeds, almond hulls, you know, all different kinds of pulps and so on that we would normally throw away as a byproduct of crop production. But because of livestock, we can now feed it to livestock. So, for example, here in California, we are feeding vast amount of byproducts to our cows. In fact, the reason why we have so many cows in California is because we're growing so many crops. And all these byproducts from crop production go into livestock. So people are concerned about cereals that go into livestock. Okay, That's what the main concern is about. So, for example, why would we feed corn to cattle? Okay, So in the past, we fed a lot of corn to cattle. Now the vast majority of corn that we produce in this country, in the United States, does no longer go into, corn, into cattle. But people might be surprised that 40 to 50 percent, so almost half of all corn grown in the United States is not fed to humans, is not fed to livestock. It's fed into our tanks, the right. tanks of our cars. Sure. Because the vast majority, 40 to 50 percent of all corn is going into, into, into ethanol. Yeah. And ethanol is now 10% of the gasoline that you put into your, into your tank. So the people so concerned about corn going into livestock are not concerned about us burning corn via ethanol. Why is that? I find that interesting. But even more important, if you look at all the land we use for livestock, so first, let me give you an idea. If you, if you think of a sheet of paper, a large sheet of paper being the entire earth, the entire surface of the earth, you now fold this sheet of paper twice until it's postcard size. That is the total amount of land in the world. The rest is water and ice, okay? And now think of a business card, the size of a business card. The size of the business card globally is the total amount of agricultural land. So that's how little we have in the world to grow food for people. If you take that business card, which is all agricultural land, and you fold it into one piece that's two-thirds and the other piece that's one-third, and then you rip that business card into pieces, then the larger of the two, the two-thirds piece of my business card, is the agricultural land that's considered marginal. It's called marginal because you cannot grow crops there. So what do you do with that land? That marginal land largely grows uh, forages, such as grasses. So what is the land use of two-thirds of all agricultural land? It's grazing with ruminant livestock. That's the only land use possible here. You cannot grow crops there. It's too hilly, it's too stony, rocky, or there's not enough water, or there is not enough sufficient and fertile soil. What's left over is one-third of all agricultural land in the world, and that's the arable land. That's how little we have. A third of a business card globally is all arable land. 
And of course, a good chunk of that is, is going to animal feed. That is absolutely true. Yeah, so let me dig a little bit deeper into that, you know, because I actually got the opportunity to visit a canola farm about two years ago, and I was really fascinated with how they crush canola seeds and, you know, use canola seeds, uh, like you said, in animal feed versus this could potentially end up in the landfill, which obviously contributes to, you know, different greenhouse gas production, particularly carbon dioxide. Is there some type of equation or how do we measure this? I mean, the cow eats it, it burps methane, but otherwise it would have went to the landfill and, you know, then it would have created CO2 there. Is there some type of like metric that we can use? I mean, no scenario, I guess, is the most optimal scenario. But, you know, I, I think it's important because I think we need to, you know, be talking about practical solutions that, you know, can move us into the right direction. So here in California, for example, where we have a very strong livestock sector, for example, 20% of all milk produced in the United States uh, comes from cows in California. 30% of all crop byproducts produced in California end up in a cow's rumen and are digested and made into milk and meat. 30%. Without those animals, that stuff would go in a landfill or rot under the sky. So, for example, when you produce cotton, then you produce cotton seeds. The cotton seeds are high in protein. They're excellent feed. Almond hulls, we are the number one producer of nuts in the world. All of these nuts and shells are going into livestock feed. All the different pulps, when you produce juices and so on, they all go into livestock feed. Nothing is wasted. It's all uh, used by, particularly by ruminant livestock. The, the whole issue around uh, human versus livestock feed slash food competition is not so much a cattle issue for dairy and beef. It's more of a monogastric issue, meaning pigs and poultry because they actually do feed stuff that we could eat directly. For example, soy or corn, okay? So these monogastric animals are eating stuff that we could eat directly, but they are also extremely efficient. So you feed them 1.6 pounds of, let's say, soy, and they produce a pound of meat. So they're very efficient. But let's not forget one thing. I mean, I, I hear all these discussions on social media and I, you already mentioned that I'm on Twitter as GHG Guru, so please join me if you want. Let's be clear about this. We are not, when we go to the supermarket, well, a select few of us actually might think of our carbon footprint when buying one product over another product. But the vast majority of people out there don't. What they do do is they go into the supermarket and they have several criteria in mind. The one is price, the other one is taste. Some people care about nutrition and so on. But the carbon footprint and those issues are not on top of the list, on top of, of people's minds. If we want to make a change, if we want to have an impact, improving animal welfare, improving environmental quality and so on, then we have to uh, inform the industry as to what's currently not going well, what could be improved. We have to inform public policy. We have to move the needle by working with the farmers and not against the farmers. Let's not forget, people, let's not forget every bite that you put in your mouth, and I don't care what you eat, what your diet is, every bite you put in your mouth originated on a farm. And these people out there producing all that stuff are constantly under the gun, and they are increasingly more often getting really tired of this. 
You know, just one little statistics. We have 2 million farmers in the United States. That sounds like a reasonable number, like a large number. But one and a half of the 2 million farmers have an annual revenue of less than $25,000. In the United States today, 80,000 farmers produce two-thirds of all food we consume. And the average age of these 80,000 farmers is 60 years old. If you want to ask me what I consider a major threat to our food system, it is definitely that, that we have an aging group of relatively, a relatively small group of aging farmers who might or might not hand it over to the next generation. And then the question is, where will our food come from? This kind of brings me to, I guess, my final like question where I want to go is the role agriculture can play in, you know, sustainability in climate change in general, because there's been a lot of, you know, I, I know having worked with General Mills before, they're now having, you know, carbon neutral farms and they're thinking about like, how can they create these farms that can actually take CO2 out of the atmosphere and, you know, still have these systems that work. I'd like you to just kind of talk a little bit about that at the end, because I think that's a piece that people don't necessarily see all the time. Absolutely. So I want you to know that a farmer has has nature in mind. Uh, they must have nature in mind because that's what they are operating on. Okay? Uh, they have to deal with animals, with soil. They have to deal with water and air and so on. They call it stewardship. They don't call it sustainability. They call it stewardship. Um, here in California, for example, where we're oftentimes at the forefront of environmental issues, we have a new law. That new law is called SB 1383, mandating a 40% reduction of methane to be achieved in 10 years by the year 2030. At first, our farmers went berserk, saying, how in the world can we do this? But what was great to see was that the state said, we're not just shoving that down your throat. We want to partner with you to getting it done. So the state agencies financially incentivize the use of techniques, technologies, for example, covers that these farmers, for example, dairy farmers, put over the manure lagoon, okay? So these covers now trap the gases that normally would go into the air. These gases are now trapped. They cannot escape. For example, um, you know, a gas called biogas, half of which is methane, can now no longer go into the atmosphere. But here's what's cool. That biogas coming from those dairy lagoons is not only trapped, but it's converted into what's called renewable natural gas, RNG, which is a fuel type, which is then going directly into semi-trucks, which now no longer burn diesel, but now they burn renewable natural gas. This conversion of dairy biogas to RNG fuel has pulled 25% of methane out of our atmosphere already. We are over halfway of the goal that we seek to achieve. And we are producing the most carbon negative fuel type there is. And what carbon negative means is you're pulling carbon out of the air. Our farmers are directly contributing to a lowering of warming. And that is just wonderful to me, okay? This is not, and I hope you all understand that, this is not some kind of greenwashing. This is not some kind of, you know, making farmers look good. This is them stepping up. They can't do it alone. They have to have public support because they are actually performing a public service by helping us 
reduce the use of heat of diesel. Yeah, and I think you know that's the the story of agriculture that I just really hope we can help get out there. I mean, we we if you really think about it, all of us have a responsibility in this field, right? Yeah. I mean, we do have a responsibility. There are people growing our food, mm -hmm. and there are many many people who don't know how food is grown. No, I mean, most people don't know. And I know that because I teach classes here with 300 undergraduate students at UC Davis. Mm. And these are smart kids, really smart kids. But I am just blown away how little people know about how their food is grown yeah. and the externalities around it. I mean, we are not learning this in high school anymore. We're not learning anything real about food anymore. Mm -hmm. But people get the information on social media and then think they are well-informed. And it's just mind-boggling and it's hurting our... It's hurting one of the most strategically important sectors of society, which is the one producing our food. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hurting it. That's real. And thank you for what you're telling us about the farmers. It's such an important message. We have so many more questions for you. This has been absolutely fascinating. I work in this space and I still get confused by some of the numbers and conflicting information that's out there. So it's really helpful for you to break it down for us. We really appreciate your time. Um, I would have loved to have gone into cellular agriculture and so many other topics, right? But that means we'll have to have you back. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and if you are interested in this, uh, I'm the director of the CLEAR Center. CLEAR.ucdavis.edu is a web page which has a bunch of information along those lines. Come visit Fantastic. us. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Frank. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. Very well. Thanks for having me. That's a wrap for today. Have ideas for the show? Tweet us at RiskyBehaviorDC. That's all one word. My handle, at ShutTheChalk. That's S-W-E-T-A-C-H-A-K. Or Taylor's handle, at Dr. Taylor Wallace. That one spelled as it sounds. You can also send us an email at hello.riskybehavior at gmail.com or a voice message at 202-713-5182. Shoot us some science or some shade. Thank you for tuning into Risky Behavior. Till next time.